The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I am joined today by Lyle Goldstein, who's an Associate Professor in the Strategic Research Department at the U.S. Naval War College. He has recently come out with a book called Meeting China Halfway, How to Diffuse the Emerging U.S.-China Rivalry. Having just read the book, I think it's fair to say it is not mainstream. It is probably diverging from the views of many. So my first question would be, why this book and why now? Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. I should say right off the bat that uh, as I work for the uh, federal government, the U.S. Navy, I should say that my these are my own views and not uh, uh, do not represent uh, government views, as, as anybody who reads it will quickly right. appreciate. You, my... you, on page two, you know you do not represent <laughs> the U.S. government. Yes, yes. Um, well, Steve, I, I'm quite convinced that the uh, the relationship is is moving in a a rather dangerous direction. Uh, from where I sit, I see um, that the uh, security competition in particular is intensifying in some very dangerous ways. And uh, I wish I could say that was occurring in just in just one domain or another, uh, in just the South China Sea, for example, but I see it across uh, uh, many domains and I'm very troubled by it, and I do believe that... Besides uh, the South yeah. China Sea, you mean the air-sea battle plan, what, where else do you see it occurring? Well, one, one sees a, quite a similar dynamic unfolding in the East China Sea, of course, uh, involving uh, the Japan-U.S.-China triangle. Uh, I am seeing, uh, I think, aspects of it in the Indian Ocean, within the uh, uh, China-India U.S. triangle, strategic triangle. I think there are some uh, dangerous strategic dynamics there. Uh, I, I also think the Korean Peninsula. Um, you know, we can see aspects of, of uh, some sort of troubling kind of um, zero-sum type strategic dynamics, which which hold out uh, major dangers. Even even if one looks further afield, I would argue uh, Africa. Um, you know, other other areas. You you actually can see. Um, you know the outlines of what you know of, of this uh, strategic competition, and uh, I feel strongly that um, those of us uh, who are convinced that uh, really we have no alternative but to to try to get along one way or another, that that we have to uh, ver- uh, work very proactively in that direction to uh, halt what I see as a kind of rising tide uh, that seems to be pushing this kind of zero sum. Uh, mentality. I, I think we're in locked in a uh, in an escalation spiral, and, and so I put forward in the book these uh, what I call cooperation spirals to counter uh, this spiral in escalation. Talk a little bit more, though, about. I think on the South China Sea, there's little question that that that's true. The East China Sea, we've actually seen a significant de-escalation in tensions. We've seen the Chinese reduce incursions into the Diaoyudao, we've seen kind of some form of modus operandi kind of reached. 
Um, in North Korea, we see the Chinese increasing their pressure on North Korea. That, except for the South China Sea, aren't we seeing improvements mm-hmm. in these other areas? Um, well, you know, I'm. I quite agree that that we kind of uh, that there has been some progress, um, and and I'm you know the first person pleased to see that progress. Um, however. You know, I would say in both the circumstances you mentioned, um, you know, the the let's say the dangerous aspects, um, you know, the the military forces in close proximity, uh, the you know the the historical factors, I think, which which uh, well, are sort of behind the conflict, uh, in in both Africa. in both uh, sets of issues, uh, South China Sea and not not North Korea. No, I'm I also consider. Considering the North Korea situation, I would not argue are in close proximity, and we have a decent, again, modus operandi. Well, for you know, for example, um, in the Yellow Sea, for example, I mean, it's a very uh, uh, complex, dynamic environment, and you know, one, I think, as we've seen, you know, the, the tension ebbs and flows. You know, we've gone from kind of incident to incident, and yeah, I'll grant you that there is some. Uh, you know, things are a little quieter than they were, say, last year. But we, to my uh, view, we need to move beyond sort of this kind of attitude of sort of crisis management. That is, how do we get through the next few months and move toward looking at some of the more fundamental um, issues that divide us in these situations so that we can really um, step away from the rather dangerous situations. I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more that, say, on the Korean Peninsula, that the U.S. and China are generally seeing eye to eye. It's right, but has that brought us any closer to denuclearization? Not yet. And of course, that is the fundamental um, danger. Mm-hmm. You make reference in the book to kind of forces in each country that kind of have a vested interest almost in in the escalation of tensions. And in the U.S., you refer to it as a, I think you use the uh, military-industrial complex, right. which is a term I often use. In fact, I use the first draft of Eisenhower's speech. I call it the military-industrial-congressional complex. Mm-hmm. How does that kind of affect policy in the United States? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Steve. It's I do think it's a set of dangerous dynamics. And I will say, uh, for my part, I, I think that it, it exists in both countries. It really does. And, and you know, in, in a only half-joking sense, I, I might suggest, for example, that the, the U.S. Navy and the Chinese Navy have, their interests are somewhat somewhat aligned in the sense that both of them, you know, uh, find some, as it were, uh, the, their bottom line is supported by the fact that, that the other one is a forms of concern. So, uh, you know, I say that only half-joking, though, because I do think um, each country, there are definitely interests at work that are kind of benefiting from the rivalry. And I'm, by the way, I don't, you know, it's not that I prescribe kind of nefarious sort of um, uh, narrow motives on people per se, but I also think that that um, there is a natural tendency to, to kind of um, a need to focus, let's say, um, and having a an adversary um, it can can be kind of useful in that respect, and and even I, I think at a deeper psychological level, um, you know, people are partly um, let's say many people are xenophobic in both countries and so forth. So I, I think it, it behooves uh, those of us who who um, you know who are convinced 
that U.S.-China relations have to move forward to, to try to broach some of these really uh, harder issues to make progress so that these other forces do not um, uh, dominate these, the, the debate that will surely grow more and more acute. You point out, I think, in several places in the book that China has not used force against a neighbor for since the, the Vietnam incursion in 1979. Given that's the case, nobody is going to really, except for tiny little kind of flare-ups, you sure, might call sure. them, there's yes. been no serious use of force, whereas the U.S. has obviously fought in Iraq, Afghanistan, and a number of, of smaller uh, conflicts. What generates the great fear of China? Where does it come from? Why do you know, why does, do we develop these, these air-sea battle plans? Why mm-hmm. do we spend what is now a significant amount of our money protecting against a country that, you know, hadn't really done much in terms of being aggressive mm-hmm. and assertive? Well, it's a terrific question and, and one I ask uh, repeatedly throughout the book. I think, uh, in effect, we, we are, um, we need to keep uh, China's record uh, right out front of, in front of us to, um, you know, as we reflect on, you know, whether to what extent, you know, China could be a danger to either the United States or its neighbors. But, uh, you know, I sense that we are probably agreed that that threat is frequently uh, well overhyped. Now, one of the issues in as a national security analyst, we, we like to divide up this complex issue in terms of capabilities on the one hand and intentions. And I will say on the capability side, what China has done in the last 10 years is, is truly impressive uh, from a military and a military strategy point of view. So I think we can say that, that China's very dramatic uh, rise in its capabilities is probably driving a lot of the fear. Uh, although, you know, if we step back and look at it in comparative uh, perspective, I think the, the rise is a little less dramatic. But I mean, there are, you know, let's put it this way, there are areas of military technology where I think China has even surpassed the United States, which is, you know, many people find uh, to be uh, very disturbing. But that said, even as we look at capabilities, we must also look at intentions. And there, it's quite a good news story. I mean, as you said, China has not used force in more than three decades in a significant way. Uh, and its uh, record of solving a lot of the disputes on its borders is a very solid one, as has been shown by a lot of scholarship. So, you know, I think we can be reasonably optimistic, and part of the challenge here is sort of keeping our own um, kind of restive um, anxieties under under control. How much do you think... Oh, by the way, one, one question is, is I have used... There is a quote in the book which I've used in many, many speeches, but I don't see, it kind of comes, it's it's uh, about the pivot or the rebalance, and it's called speak loudly and carry a small stick, which is the way I characterize the pivot from, I think, one week after it was announced. It was such a, I thought, a badly, conceptually flawed and, and flawed in its implementation policy. Where did that, where did you, obviously it's a takeoff on the TR quote, Yes, well, yes. Uh, but where did you come up with it? <laughs> well, thanks very much, Steve. I, I'm a real believer that um, that the uh, pivot, uh, the rebalance, has been um, mishandled. In fact, to such a degree that I, I guess you would call me an opponent of the policy. I don't know that it can be uh, As am I. salvaged. Okay, <laughs> so it sounds like we're aligned there. But I, I feel strongly that. 
Um, many people are arguing about the size of the stick, right? Um, and where I work at Naval War College, that's sort of a constant set of arguments. And I, I have my own opinions about that, and I'm on the record uh, saying in various ways um, that the stick needs to be a particular type, and just generally, our military posture that is, uh, one that is, uh, let's say, prudent, and is, um, you know, we are prepared for uncertain futures and prepared in the right way. I don't think we have pursued those uh, policies well enough. I've, for example, at long advocated that we needed a larger, actually, uh, submarine force. Um, but more to the point, um, I think we have been speaking too loudly. Uh, we are not speaking softly, we're speaking too loudly. Uh, approaching our diplomacy has been clumsy. Uh, I think we've been prone to give a lot of lectures uh, to suggest solutions that are really uh, sort of either pie in the sky or kind of up in the air, totally uh, solutions that have no basis in, in sort of concrete diplomatic uh, solutions. So I, I feel that we, we need to put real proposals on the table. Uh, earlier today I was speaking with someone about we, we need a Holbrook-type type figure to put uh, you know, to put maps on the table, to draw lines across the maps, and to begin to talk cre- concretely about settling some of these uh, claims issues in a serious way. And, uh, you know, I believe that will not happen, for example, in a multilateral setting. It's just, that's unrealistic. Any political scientist could tell you that multilateral is so much harder than a bilateral negotiation. So uh, let's put real proposals on the table or help to facilitate those proposals and, and let's speak softly and carry a big stick instead of uh, speaking loudly and, and I, offending I, all parties. I agree entirely and it kind of moves me that you, you talk about my uh, my former client boss partner <laughs> Richard Holbrook who we miss dearly. He was of course my, uh, was the Assistant Secretary of State when I was the uh, an attorney advisor in the Office of uh, Legal Advisory Station at Pacific Is Affairs, that right? and wow. really was able to kind of put in a bilateral way, put everything on the table, and be able to negotiate it. And he is he is missed dearly, and I think he is the kind of person whether we can find a new generation who could put all of these things on the table yes, the yes. way you suggest at the end of the book, where you get in this virtuous cycle yeah. in the relationship between the United States and China, which I think is is in the interest of both countries, may not be in the interest of everyone in both countries, but it is in the interest <laughs> of both countries. But uh, I think it's it's well worth discussing. Well, I thank you all for joining us today. If you want to hear some imaginative solutions to how we can improve the U.S.-China relationship, read Lyle Goldstein's Meeting China Halfway, How to Diffuse the Emerging U.S.-China Rivalry. Lyle, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Steve, for the opportunity.